You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are still working our way through the Psalms. We're up to Psalm 94 now. We're in the back end, at least, of the book of Psalms. And Psalm 94 is actually a very good psalm, I would say, for today's world. If you keep an eye on general news, one of the things you may notice is that it can be very distressing to look around and just see at the moment the sheer brazenness of those who would commit evil. I'm thinking particularly about persecution of Christians and minorities in various different countries. It's hard to watch. And it can often seem that, in fact, to try and follow the Lord is actually considered to be evil by everyone else these days. And that in itself is also very distressing. Often it is, in fact, governments and rulers and leaders who are the ones that are encouraging and facilitating this evil behaviour. And for Christians, for believers, this can be very frustrating. And praise the Lord for us, hopefully that's kind of all it is. It is frustrating, but for many believers, it's much more than just frustrating. It's, you know, life or death. But this is not new. And the psalmist here that we're going to look at in Psalm 84, he seems to be in a very similar situation. His government at that time was engaged in the promotion of evil and the persecution of the righteous. The wicked seemed to be profiting at the expense of those most helpless in society, and they were doing this often in league with the rulers of the society. They had no need to hide their wicked deeds in secret meetings. They were making their alliances in the throne rooms and the seats of power at this time. So it's with that backdrop that I want us to look and see the boldness of this psalmist here as he really just quite forthrightly and candidly addresses his nation at this time. He is living in the midst of evil times. The psalm is really split into four sections that will help you as you study it. In the first section, the psalmist is speaking to God about sinners. And then he speaks to sinners about God. Notice these. These are interesting the way the psalm changes as you go through it. But in the third section, he speaks to the righteous about God. And then he speaks finally to himself about God. And I want to highlight what is the topic of conversation? doesn't matter who he's talking to. The sinners, the righteous, himself. His topic of conversation is always about God. He has the Lord on his lips all the time. And this is a good reminder for us, this order. It's so easy sometimes to simply find another believer and moan or whinge about the current state of situations. We've all been guilty of that. Sometimes it's, you feel like you just need to get things off your chest, but it's a fine line between doing that and what we would call grumbling and bringing yourself down. But the psalmist here, he first, before he does that, he speaks to God about sinners. And that's probably the first place we should always go when we have a complaint or a grievance or that we are distressed or we are just grieved by things that are going on in our lives or in the nation as a whole. We speak to God about it and then we speak to sinners about God. You see the way that that works. I think it's just a very good model for us today that we see in this psalm. So let's read the first seven verses together. He says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly, all who do wickedness and vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. So here we see the psalmist addressing God. 
Ultimately, he knows that God alone is the one who will correct the evils of this world. Now, many times this may be done through the influence of his people on this earth, but it seems here the psalmist is in a time where the remnant obviously is small and they don't have much cultural influence in that sense. He is appealing straight to God. Now, my translation here says the God of vengeance. Some of you may be reading, uh, it may say something more like the God to whom vengeance belongs. And that's probably an easier way to understand what's being said here. The God to whom vengeance belongs. Reminds me of the verse Romans 12, where it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord is the only one who can really justly administer vengeance, as we could call it in that sense. Now, again, when we hear the word vengeance, some people immediately, uh, it troubles us a little bit, particularly in in a comfortable Western world that we may have grown up in, the concept of vengeance, We don't like to hear things like that. We may think of someone accusing our God of being a vengeful God and these type of concepts. However, the best way to really understand this, what the psalmist is getting at here, is the concept of justice being played out. That is really what what vengeance is getting at, God bringing justice against wickedness. And we, we understand the concept of justice much easier. We understand this all too well in our world. We see it play out in our courts Many times we don't, but on on a good day, we see it play out in our courts. If someone commits a a really grievous or heinous sin or a crime, to use that language, and there are many unspeakable things done in the world, you know, I'm sure you've all read them on reports at various different times, things that you could barely even mention, and we look at that situation when you're reading them, and you have this innate desire that people be brought to justice. Someone be held accountable, or if they've done something to someone else something should happen to them. We naturally understand that, and I think that's part of the fact that we understand what it means when God is a God of justice and the image bearers of God should not be doing those things to one another. Justice is actually something that's quite natural to the fallen world in that respect. The cosmic courtroom, we could say, is no different. There will be an ultimate day of justice, and there is actually a messianic connection with this. Let me read to you Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. This is verse one and two. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, if you are familiar with that portion of scripture, you may know that that is the passage that Jesus spoke when he was called up in that synagogue to inaugurate his public ministry in many ways. But he did a very strange thing. He he read all of it up until the part where it said to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord, which is not where the actual Torah portion reads. They have scheduled readings that they have to do that trace their heritage back to the times of Ezra, and this was unusual. So Jesus stopped in a place where he shouldn't have stopped, and he handed the scroll back and he went and sat down. There's, There's huge significance in that. Because he is actually using this to say that he is the, the fulfillment of the, he is the one now bringing good news to the afflicted, healing up the brokenhearted. This is what he's actually saying with this. But then he stops. So right now, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, that is the gospel period. That is our commission as saints. That is the, our purpose on this earth, one of the purposes of the, on the, or as the church on this earth. And that's why it says, God is the God to whom vengeance belongs. And later, I believe, the day of vengeance 
the rest of that Isaiahic uh, prophecy there will be fulfilled in Isaiah 61 62. I find that quite a fascinating way to see how Jesus handled that scripture there. Now, we all know in the world today there are those who deserve justice or vengeance or retribution, we could call it, and they escape it all, all the time. You know, millions of times every single day people escape justice, they commit evil without really seemingly any, consequ- any consequences. However, in a world where leaders are often the chief sinners, they get away with it, ultimately, we know because of this prophecy here in the book of Isaiah, no one will escape it. It will always catch up with you. Justice will always catch up to you. Reminds me as I was studying this, uh, for a lot of other stuff that I'm reading at the same time for other projects, the Nazi leader, Adolf Eichmann, at the end of the war, when all the camps were opened and the Nazis surrendered, a lot of these very high-ranking Nazi officials basically fled into Europe. And the idea, they called it the rat lines. So these were usually secret uh, escape tunnels that different people, quite often high-ranking members of the Catholic Church, would use to funnel Nazi leaders. Their aim was to get them to Latin America, where, where there were no extradition laws and things like that. But Adolf Eichmann, he was one of the chief architects of the Final Solution, And he used the rat lines, and he ended up in Argentina, I believe. And initially, at the end of the war, he was arrested by the Americans. However, he had a lot of help. He was very well-connected. He was given fake identities. He fled to various different places throughout Germany. And eventually, he ended up under a new identity in Argentina. And because this was happening quite a lot, and to be frank, a lot of the European nations didn't really see the need or the desire to want to bring any of these people to justice, a group of Jewish survivors, the chief of them being a man named Simon Wiethensall, you might know that name, there's a centre named after him today, a human rights advocacy centre, they basically became Nazi hunters. And you probably see there's even a show on, I believe, on Netflix now called Hunters, which is sort of artistic licence with this period of history. And they would basically use all their resources of the world that they had available to them, and they would hunt down these people who were responsible for... And remember, we're not just talking a couple of deaths. These were people who were responsible for hundreds of thousands, millions of deaths, and some of them very high up. They eventually helped, and they tracked down Eichmann in Argentina. And they, they didn't go and arrest them themselves. They would then speak to Mossad, which is the Israeli uh, secret service, and they sent a team of, like, nine people, and they watched this man operating in Argentina. And then one day, as he was walking home from work, they approached him. He was immediately suspicious. It's like a bit of a spy movie. A car pulled up next to him. They threw a blanket over his head. They stuffed him in the back of the car. They took him to a safe house. They moved him to a couple of other safe houses. And eventually, they realized, because Argentina would not give them an extradition, they had no interest in doing that, they had to just smuggle him out of the country. So they They put some female Mossad agents as airline uh, hostesses and they drugged him. They put him on a commercial jet and they flew him back to Israel where ultimately he was tried and executed. And just that whole story makes me think. He thought he got away with it. He fled, changed his name, but justice caught up with him. And ultimately, when we're looking at this psalm, he's speaking of very evil things that are happening in the nation And he knows that God will bring justice at some point. Justice will catch up. Look at what he says. God of vengeance shine forth. 
That word shine forth there is a word that is used specifically to do with the manifest presence of God. We find it first used in Deuteronomy 33. It says the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount Seir and he shone forth from Mount Peron and he came in the midst of his holy ones. It speaks of a dramatic manifestation of God's Shekinah glory. He says, rise up, O judge of the earth, back in Psalm 94. This is an expression that comes from the story of Abraham and the destruction of Sodom. Again, an act of manifestation of God's vengeance or justice, you could say. Do you remember when Abraham is, if there's ten righteous in the city, I will not uh, destroy it. And he's having that whole uh, dialogue with God there. And then in verse uh, 25 of Genesis 18, it says, Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And that's his confidence there. And this is, again, why he's quoting that, because it's a whole psalm to do with this topic. Notice he says in Psalm 3, verses 3 and 4, how long, how long, you get that twice, that repetition of the phrase how long. It means that this state of affairs, this corrupt society of Israel at this time, has been going on for quite a while. And it is resulting in the persecution of God's people. It says that the wicked speak arrogantly. They vaunt themselves. That means they promote themselves above other people and they crush and afflict your people. If you want to see a sign of wickedness on the earth, you just have to look where God's people are being persecuted. You can do that today very, very easily. We see this in many places. And quite often it is the most helpless in society that get hurt. And he lists this threefold group of people that we find throughout the biblical text the widows, the strangers, and the orphans. These, in fact, these three groups are elsewhere really central to the Christian faith. The book of James 1.27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And what we get from this is that God's heart is often with the downtrodden. These are actually, gives us a good view of what he actually wanted his people to do. He wanted the nation of Israel to do it, and equally he wants the church to do it too. That's why we see it in the book of James here. It's something that we need to think about quite seriously. Let's go on, let's read verses 8 to 11. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you, be understa- when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastises the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, they are a mere breath. So now we see the psalmist addressing sinners. These two words, senseless and stupid, again, we might be a little jarred by that, thinking, well, it's a bit harsh, you can't call someone that. Let's try not to be so uh, wet behind the ears and sensitive about these things. There's a place for that language. What it really means in the Hebrew here is when it says senseless, it's talking about an improper use of reason. And when it says stupid, sorry, senseless is to do with the brutality, moral depravity, and stupid is to do with an improper use of reason. And that is how he characterizes what the wicked are doing right now. The same people that in verse 7 said, 
the law doesn't see what we do, we get away with it, basically. And he's saying that's stupid reasoning, and now he's about to tell them why that's stupid reasoning. He gives two arguments. In verse 9, he says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? What he's basically saying in poetic form there is, how is it possible that you think that God, who actually created the eye and created the ear, does not see what you're doing? He's saying your logic is flawed, your reasoning is stupid. He sees. And then in verse 10, he says, if God chastises the nations, this is his point here, will he not chastise you, his sinful people, his own people who are being sinful? Surely he will, is the conclusion. The wicked have given their appraisal of God in verse 7. They've said that he neither knows nor cares what they're doing. And now in response, we see in verse 11, God gives his opinion of man's fallen reasoning. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man and they are a mere breath. Because remember, he said that the wicked are promoting themselves. They've got this delusions of grandeur. They think they're more important than they are, think they're more powerful than they are. And God is saying, your thoughts, I know all your thoughts, and they're a mere breath. Justice will come. Now, since the Enlightenment days, so 18th century, reason, man's reason, has been put forth really as the ultimate solution to all man's problems. It's been put forth as that which we need to it's really been put on a pedestal and almost deified. I'm going to show you how that's quite practically happened uh, right now. Now, you see this with a lot of atheist movements today. They call themselves free thinkers, and they're, they're all about what we call the modernity, the rationalist mindset. Not demeaning some of, some of that, but it comes from the Enlightenment, this period of history that the whole point of the Enlightenment, let me just give you a bit of history here, was not just the correct use of intellect. It was not just about human reason. It was about human reason as opposed to religious reasoning. That was, that was what the whole Enlightenment was about. Now, unfortunately, it was Catholicism that they were reacting against, and quite frankly, Catholicism had committed some very horrible... The, the world was pretty harsh under Catholicism at this time, and this is why we had the French Revolution, where they wanted to throw off the shackles of religious reasoning. But it was, that is the whole point of the Enlightenment. Now, because... Uh, the French Revolution is really synonymous with the start of that movement. They wanted to throw off all of those abusive shackles of religion. And this happened during the French Revolution. And they actually begun in its place, now this is fascinating, what they called the cult of reason. And this was the first model of an atheistic state religion. Not the first, but in modern times, this was the first atheistic state-sponsored religion. And to celebrate this... During the French Revolution, they held what they called the Festival of Reason. And its goal was to perfect mankind through the attainment of truth and liberty with reason at its, as its guiding principle. But of course, remember, read that reason without God is the point that's behind that sentiment there. In, in 1793, they took over Notre Dame Cathedral, obviously which was a centre of Catholic oppression of that, of that time, they removed all the religious symbols from it, and they renamed it the Temple of Reason. It always makes me think of Nietzsche's poem where he's talking about the sacred games that man will invent once they kill God. They still have to have their temples, we still have to have our festivals because man is incurably religious, however much we like to say we're not. But they called it the Temple of Reason, they removed the Christian altar, they replaced it with what they called an altar to liberty, and during the religious ceremony they would literally worship the goddess of reason, and they would actually bring in a real-life female who would play that character called the Goddess of Reason. And she had to be a female of unparalleled beauty. 
see who was in charge there. But that was what happened. And I believe that is really representative of what this movement was about. You see, when you separate human reason from God, you're going to end up with oppression, with bloodshed, which will lead to the judgment of God, ultimately. And the reason for this is because part of the Enlightenment was the dream, the utopian vision that through the right exercise of human reason, we can get to that state of perfection, which, as you might know, is actually what Jesus Christ says the kingdom of God will bring us into. So again, it's trying to get to the kingdom. This is really the history of mankind, trying to get to the kingdom without God. And that's what we have going on here. And I believe, in some sense, that's what all these wicked governments or these godless governments are trying to achieve. And this is ultimately why the psalmist, I believe, now addresses the wicked. He wants to expose the folly of this line of godless reasoning. Because when you separate reason, you end up with all these different things. And that's not just in the Psalms. You could look through history. I think you could, I'd probably be confident saying almost every single time that you see that, uh, you end up with bloodshed and oppression. And it should serve as a warning uh, to our culture today in Western society that has historically been based on a Judeo-Christian worldview that is now increasingly... Uh, criminalizing that worldview and leaving it far, far behind, we cannot think that that will not have consequences. And again, we don't need to imagine. We can simply look to history and look to other parts of the world to see what those consequences are. It's a, in, in a way, this is what the, the writer of Proverbs, in the Proverbs chapter 1, let me read you just a few verses. This is wisdom speaking. So let's say this is God speaking. He's shouting to the same people here that the psalmist is addressing. He says, wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square at the head of the noisy streets. She cries out at the entrance of the gates in the city. She utters sayings. How long, you naive ones, will you love being simple minded? Scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. Fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. And you'll notice this theme that we're going to see build up here. It's about basically (laughs) not listening to God. And this is what the exercise of human reason without having God in the picture ultimately is. So now after this warning to the wicked, the psalmist turns to the righteous. And just as the wicked needed that word of correction, the righteous need a word of comfort at this time as they are the ones suffering. So let's read verse 12 onwards. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. You see, the wicked may not listen to the words of the Lord, but the remaining righteous in these situations must listen to the word of the Lord. Even in days of adversity, we need to listen to the word, to the Lord. We can be comforted ultimately by knowing that the Lord's justice will come and that the Lord will never abandon his people. These are his promises to us and they are eternal. Let's just read, let's just read to the end of the psalm. Yeah, and then we'll comment and wrap it up. Verse 16, who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply with me, your consolations delight my soul. 
Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which devises mischief by decree? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge, and he has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. Again, it's very strong language that we're reading here. And the psalmist is really now reflecting personally on the message. And ultimately, he knows that the one who will stand up for him is the Lord. And it is the loving kindness of the Lord that has kept his foot from slipping. In verse 19, he says, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. And I like that because I, I mean, anxiousness is a big thing today. A lot of people get very anxious in obviously all sorts of different situations. It can be things that we would be dealing with in our lives or obviously in the text we're talking about different type of things, but it's something that we see a lot in our world today. But what I like is the solutions. He says, if you are anxious, take comfort in the consolations. This is, consolation means comfort. Take comfort in the promises of God and they will delight your soul. I often think about this because in, in conversations that I've had in the past when people are telling me things about their life and their struggles and when you've gone into the conversation a little bit, you get to the point that you want to turn it around and start talking about the Word of God, and it becomes very clear that they are not fully aware of the promises of the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't, obviously, of course, millions of other reasons that come into situations that would cause anxiety, but at the very least, and I would say probably at the most, we should use the solutions that we find in the Word of God, and one of them is to be thoroughly acquainted with the promises of God, because if you don't know the promises of God, how are they supposed to benefit you in your life when you come across adversity. So this is a good, I would say these sorts of things are very good arguments for what we would call Bible memorization. We don't want to do that out of some legalistic trip or some way to show off how much scripture you know. You actually do it because these things do have an impact in our lives if you're a spiritual born-again believer. The body and the soul unite and work together. It's worth understanding that. Verse 20 is an interesting verse. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you? one which devises mischief by decree. This is really an acknowledgement that sometimes wickedness is found in very high places. But even when that is the case, the Lord is our stronghold, he is still higher, and we know that he will have his day. Isaiah again comes to mind. We proclaim the favourable year of the Lord, and then one day the Lord will be revealed from heaven, and the day of vengeance of our God will come. But notice... It says, to comfort those who mourn. This implies that there are a lot of believers who are mourning, who have suffered under the hands of a fallen world and an evil, evil people, and God's justice is a comfort to them. We must understand that. We proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. This is what Jesus instructed us to do. And I'd also remind you, that was 2,000 years ago. It may be that we're much closer to the coming of the day of the Lord than he was when he first uttered these words. And therefore... We need to draw close to the Lord. We need to take refuge in him, in him as the psalmist did. And ultimately, we need to renounce the folly of sin and realize that man's reason apart from God will end in judgment. Psalm 94. Now, that's a tough psalm. There's a lot of heavy stuff there. And it's funny the way we are now immediately move into Psalm 95, which we'll also do tonight. And it's a real change of pace. Psalm 95 to 100 are really psalms about worship. They're fascinating psalms. Psalm 95 is known as the invitatory psalm. It's an invitation. 
And in the early church and historically throughout Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodox, many different Christian traditions, it's used to introduce various liturgical readings and prayers. One of the first times we have it mentioned is Athanasius in the fourth century. He says, before the beginning of their prayers, Christians invite and exhort one another in the words of this psalm. It is an invitation and it's a very good choice. You'll see why hopefully as we read it. I would say this is one that the church really needs to learn from in when we're talking about worship, if we're studying what worship is, how we should conduct ourselves during worship. And I would particularly direct those in the church who are involved in worship ministry to meditate on the invitation that is found in the first few verses of this psalm because it's fascinating. So let's just, let's just jump straight in. It says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So a few things I want us to notice about this invitation. The first thing we read four times, let us, let us, let us, let us. This is a collective invitation invitation this is talking about congregational worship here and i want us to think hard about that right now in light of 2020 in light of what everything we've seen with covid with lockdowns with bans on worship i'm not making points here please don't misunderstand me i want you to come to your own conclusions but i do not feel that this has been factored into the conversation as it should be there is a biblical command for communal worship this is talking about singing but it's also much more than singing. We know that singing is one act of worship, but it comes with a whole lot more. And I would say we do need to think long and hard about this, about what has happened, about our response, about how we proceed from here, and about what we do in the future if we have things like this again. Now, again, I'm not... Again, don't, please don't go beyond what I'm saying here. All I'm saying is I want you to read texts like this and honestly think about the place of worship and the place of the church because one of the trends that I've seen creeping up on things, Christian websites and news sources is this term online church. Now, I'm going to say this frankly, and this is, I'm saying this after quite a lot of reflection on the issue. There's no such thing as online church. You can watch church online. Don't misunderstand me. You see, but you see the difference there because what I'm concerned about is that very quickly, within a year, this term online church has taken its place in the vocabulary as just one of the other options that, of a way we can do church. And I think that is indicative of the way we think of things in the Western culture, where we can just choose, pick and choose what we want of various things. But I'm going to say online church is not a thing. It's absolutely acceptable to watch church online. You can, it's a real blessing, and we've adapted brilliantly in some respects to the cultural moment. The Lord's going to use that. I have no doubt of that. Again, don't go beyond what I'm saying. I am just saying I believe we're missing something if we allow that to become another way of doing church. And I think the Psalms would agree with us in that respect. We've seen this play out recently. I don't know if any of you saw the news today. The Scottish church, as you know, in Scotland, they've had an an absolute ban on worship and gathering uh, for much longer than we have here in, in, in the UK, in England rather. But a group of leaders got together and they sued the government saying that this was, and the way they phrased it, was a disproportionate interference with Article 9 of the European Convention of Human Rights. Article 9 is the, is the convention that guarantees freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Now, it does say that 
as far as there's not a threat to public safety. So it does have a clause saying that these rights can be temporarily restrained if it's for the public good. But even in light of that, their argument was this was completely disproportionate to the risk. And that ruling came back today. Now, in Scotland, no one really thought that, because Scotland's pretty secular. But, you know, the church there is not what it used to be. But this, this is the ruling that came back from, from the High Court in Scotland today. The government ban on churches was ruled unlawful. The judgment by Lord Braid read like this. He said, it is impossible to measure the effect of those restrictions on those who hold religious beliefs. It goes beyond mere loss of companionship and an, ability, and an inability to attend a lunch club. Equally, while funding has been made available for the respondents to encourage the participation in online services by elderly and vulnerable people, among others, to assist digital connectivity, that, listen, that does not and cannot provide a substitute for communal worship. I think he's spot on there. I think he's understood the point and why the leaders were reacting to this. If we allow worship to become something that is not at the centre and the core of our faith, then ultimately we're going to see from the rest of this psalm that will affect us in very serious ways. As I've seen the conversation develop, I just haven't seen a depth of conversation around actual biblical theology of worship We've talked a lot about guidelines and buildings and all these different sorts of things, but we haven't talked about biblical theology that much. And this is a part of the conversation that the church should be speaking about. We have health officials in the government who can handle the other stuff in some respects. The church should be speaking about biblical theology, about worship. And that hasn't really been happening. And this is something that I think we need to come back to. And this psalm is actually a great place to do that. Now, forget about COVID and all this sorts of thing. Often just because of the technological state of our world, it's easy to have the attitude also that we just prefer to watch it alone. Some of us may be more introverted in character and it plays in, I understand all of that stuff. But I think the psalmist would disagree with that attitude. There is something powerful about being together, and I'm talking about an actual spiritual reality. If we have the attitude that I, I can worship God alone, just on a boat in the country... You know, that's fine. I'm not saying you can't do that. But don't think that's the same as worshipping with the body of Christ because there's an actual spiritual reason why we're called to congregational worship. Do you remember in the book of uh, Corinthians? He says, for by one spirit, we are all baptised into one body. And that is a theological truth. We are forever connected together in the body of Christ by the spirit of God and therefore we should forever be praising God as one. And that is one of the things that we do in congregational worship. And really one of my hopes is that nationally, uh, globally you could say actually, over the next few months as we begin to hopefully see the back end of this period, we will see an explosion of people who are craving to get back to church. And if not, we will see an actual revival of the church when we understand quite what it is we're doing here and having something taken away can quite often shock you into understanding and shock you out of complacency to understand what it was and what it is we're doing. Now, the second thing to notice that jumps out about this invitation, about the type of worship being talked about here, is it is vocal. It is loud, it is exuberant, and it is joyful. And this should ultimately be things that characterise our worship. I'm not saying there's not a time for sombre reflection in worship. I'm not saying there's not a time to be broken in worship. All of those things are valid. 
But often, frequently, in fact, I would say, in the scriptures, you find these words, shout for joy, sing for joy, cry out for joy. This is the attitude that the believer should have in worship. Now, I know there are situations in life that make that difficult, and that's why you'll read in the Psalms many times, you'll weep in worship. And there's, you know, the, the whole spectrum of human emotions is absolutely fine. But I think it's just good to remember, because as I read a lot of church history, you'll notice that the church has spent years fighting about things like, should we be playing guitars in worship? Should we have music or no music? Should we have pianos or, or organs? And there was different times when these were really serious debates. And they, they were, there were councils and things going on about them. Clapping was a big issue in the church at one point. Dancing is just, was absolutely frowned upon. All these things. But yet, I can't reconcile any of those debates with what you read in the Psalms. If you want a biblical theology of worship, you've got to have the book of Psalms in there, and you'll find all of these things in the Psalms. You see, too often, I believe, our tendency, particularly maybe us as stiff upper lip Brits, is that we react to expressions of worship a little bit like uh, David's wife reacted when she saw him dancing in front of the ark. It's embarrassing for you. That's attitude. Now, you remember she was divinely disciplined for that. I know there's more to that story than that, obviously, but... It's easy to have that attitude. Now, having said that, let me qualify that. I'm not arguing that anything goes in worship. Absolutely, the next few verses are going to make that abundantly clear. All I'm saying is that it's okay to have loud and joyful expressions in worship in that sense. Worship must be biblical. Worship worship must be God-centered, not man-centered. And this is the thing that controls your expressions. We are not concerned necessarily with creating the right moods or with raising people's emotions. Again, not that emotions are bad. and Different songs will evoke different emotions, but we all know and we've all seen that emotions can be very easily manipulated, particularly on the grand stage of the, what we have available to us. Or we don't want to get too caught up in the million and other one external things that are neither good nor bad, they're just things. The source of our joy, our praise and our focus and our worship must be God himself. True biblical worship has God as it, at its source and also at its subject. This means that it has to be founded upon the truth of who God is. Yeah, you with me on that? Like we have to have a proper understanding of who God is as he has revealed himself to us. The reason we see so much worship that barely qualifies as worship is because it's based not on the truth of who God is. It's quite often, more often based on our own opinions of what God should be like or our own faulty theology that hasn't matched up with the word of God. And then you start going off into extremes and that's when you start getting behaviours that are probably not suitable. So there are these extremes, but if you want to stay the course, you understand there's room for huge differences in expressions as long as the foundation is based upon who God has revealed himself to be. That is the truth about worship, which is why I believe now, after this great invitation, come let us, let us, let us worship, we have this wonderful doxology. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountain are his also. The sea is, in his, uh, the sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands are formed the dry land. This is a wonderful description of the sovereignty of God, the one who has power over the created order because he is the source of the one who, he's actually the one who created it. He is far above all other deities, false deities of the surrounding nations, and therefore the worship of him should be different. Notice, it's all directed to him. Verse 1, to the Lord, to the rock. Verse 2, in his presence, to him. On and on it goes. This is why we we are often so passionate about what we would call theology. This is about knowing God. 
This is about studying God so that we know who this great God is. That's why every single Christian needs to be a theologian. You don't need to be an academic, that's different, but you need to be a theologian. It just means studying God. You think about God with your life. One book phrases it like this. Theology is not intended to be a cold pursuit of faceless doctrines listed in black and white on the page before you, which is how often it's presented in the church, which is just such a shame. Rather, the pursuit of doctrine is nothing less than the burning desire to see God in full colour, to see into the very throne room of God, throne room of God and understand more of the nature, the character of the great God we worship. That is what we're doing here, that's what we do in church, and the reason is so that our worship and our praise and our understanding of him can be uh, made central to what we have in the Christian life. You remember in the 1990s, Matt Redman's famous song, I know we've probably told this story before, this was a time in UK Christianity where Soul Survivor Conferences, they had a church in Watford that was really big, and Matt Redman and Tim Hughes and a few other guys were knocking out Huge worship songs that were catching, going across the world globally. Huge performances. People were flocking to their church to hear because uh, they were very famous. They suddenly just took off and became very famous. Now, at this time, Matt Redman recalls there was a dynamic missing as all of this started to happen. And so the pastor, who, a guy who was a guy called Mike Pilavachi, who was the guy who started Soul Survivor Conferences, he did a very brave thing. He stripped away the entire sound system and the entire worship band for a period of time. And Matt Redman, obviously being one of these proper worship leaders, he, he remembers his first looking at the situation. He says that unplugging led to an embarrassing silence. But then as they per- persevered, the congregation eventually rediscovered their own voices. They often started to sing unaccompanied, and they offered up heartfelt prayers. And basically they had a fresh encounter with God that wasn't all about coming and hearing the famous songs. And then at a time... They felt sufficiently ready to reintroduce musicians and the sound system. But having done that, although they were back to singing the same songs, they record that the worship was completely transformed. And that was because it had happened in the heart. And when Matt Redman wrote his recollection of what had happened during this period, we have the song, you know, when the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring you something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. We all know that song, don't we? That's how he wrote that song. It was written in his bedroom just as a recollection of this event that had happened in the church. And I like that. I think that corresponds with this psalm here. God was at the centre of their worship. Let's read verse 6 and 7. Come now, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today, if you hear his voice. Now again, there's a time now we see it turn from worship into deep reverence. The word here, bow down, you're probably talking about being completely prostrate before the the Lord. You're only going to do that if you understand who God is. That's why theology is tied in with worship and reverence for the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 119, it says, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. If you don't have reverence for God, you're probably not in the word enough. That's a simple conclusion. That's exactly what it means. We bow down before him. Let's read verses 8 to 11. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work for 40 years. I loathed that generation And said, they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. 
So God now warns his people the danger of hardening their hearts. You remember in the New Testament, a godly disposition is always described as having a tender heart, a soft heart, a forgiving heart, a heart that is humble and willing to learn. And here we learn that a hard heart is the opposite of that. It's a heart that is not willing to listen to the Lord. That's ultimately the principle here. And to illustrate this principle, he references a couple of events in Israel's life. So I won't take you through the whole events by turning to it, but it's simply the event. They came out of Egypt. The Israelites complained to Moses. Where's the water? Why has God brought us? You remember the story. Why has he brought us into the wilderness to kill us? Moses gets angry. They get angry with him. They want to stone Moses. Moses pleads to the Lord and he smashes the rock and the water comes out. It's, it's referencing these events. But ultimately, the complaining and quarreling against Moses was taken as a direct complaint and quarrel against God. They did not trust the promises of God. They were not listening. And this is really the, the end, just one event out of a long list of Israel, Israel's history that testifies to their attitude. They did not listen to the Lord. And thus, their hardness of heart stopped them from entering their rest, which was, in that context, the promised land. The best commentary you'll find on this is the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4. I won't read it. It's a whole first century sermon on Psalm 95. It's fascinating. Go back and read it while you've got this fresh in your mind. It'll open up new, in new ways to you. But what is the connection the psalmist is making in closing now between having a hard heart and not listening to the Lord? It is basically saying that there is a connection between biblical worship and the danger of hardening our hearts. So he now invites us to worship and then he gives us a warning If we fail to worship God, we are in danger of hardening our hearts. Understand that. That's a biblical principle that I see we have here in this psalm. It's not often one that we think about. And again, tie this in, like I said, with everything that's been happening and the the emphasis we place on worship, communal worship. When we fail to worship, the hardening of our hearts begins. This is a very real reason, I believe, that we need to think long and hard. Worship, worship that is communal, that is joyful, that is loud, that is truth-based, that is God-centered, that is awe-inspiring, that is reverential worship, is fundamental to the Christian life. If we do not listen to this warning, I believe, then maybe our hearts have already begun to be hardened. And if you want to know if your heart is hardened, a hard heart will lead to dissatisfaction, it will lead to disobedience, and ultimately it will probably lead to divine discipline if you're a believer. So, brethren, I would say, let's accept this great invitation to worship our maker and let's spend our lives in pursuit of the great God who is above all gods. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you again, Lord, just for the truth of your word. It just never ceases to amaze me, Father, and I pray that you would help us to learn it, to feed on it more and more in our lives. And we'd ask your protection upon this church body, Lord. We pray, Father, for the, for the nation, that we'd be, all the churches, Lord, would be back together soon singing. We just ask that you would have your hand upon them at this time and help us, Lord, to listen and hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.